Hello, Marvelites! You are listening to This Week in Marvel, and I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm C.B. Sobolski, Editor-in-Chief. And uh, we are here for our fourth This Week in Marvel Unlimited Reading Club episode of 2019. Uh all year long, we're going to be celebrating Marvel's 80th anniversary. And with the Reading Club, we pick a story, a couple of issues, something from Marvel Unlimited. We read it, we talk about it, and we want you guys to join us with it. So we've done the uh, Marvel Comics number one. We've done some books from the 50s, uh, the 60s. Last episode, we did the Fantastic Four issues, which are so good. And uh, this week, we are discussing Avengers issues 160 through 162 from 1977. CB, what do you think when someone brings up Marvel in the 70s? Like, what comes to mind first? You know, what comes to mind when you think of the 70s, there's a bunch of different stuff. You have, obviously, the birth of most of the Marvel Cosmic Universe. You have the introduction of so many classic characters who spun out of popular culture at that time. And then you also have the rise of really the penciler. You know, it's where Mm -hmm. the real penciler, the artist, started taking foot, where people started noticing it. Fans were following comics, not just for the characters as they used to, but really for the artist who started coming to prominence by drawing them. Yeah, yeah, which is interesting because that was sort of, as I was trying to figure out what we were going to talk about, I started honing in on on artists, not even thinking about it exactly how you put it. It just was natural to me when I was looking at some of these things. So we're recording this episode a little early because CB is going off on a bunch of secret missions for the rest of the month. Uh, So I'm going to get into your questions and comments that you sent in using hashtag TwimURC by myself later on in the episode. I'll record that separately. If there's anything uh, really that we need to hold over for you, CB, we'll keep you posted. Sounds good. But, you know, I was thinking about why we picked these books in particular, and it goes into what you were just saying. And for for me, it was George Perez. Like yep. I, George Perez is one of my all-time favorite artists. I think he's one of the greatest artists in comics history. And so I was trying to figure out, okay, what George Perez to pick because there's also Fantastic Four. There's a bunch of issues of Avengers we could have done. And so I tossed some options your way, and you immediately grabbed onto this one. Why? Why Avengers with an exclamation point? I think I even responded <laughs> yeah. to you with yeah. Because, you know, these issues to me are not just issues where we see some classic Avengers action, you know, where there's some big heroes, the introduction of some new characters, some of the key pivotal moments in the characters' growth over the years. But these are ones where it was three issues consecutively done by George Perez, really at some of his finest. This is where you got to see George go from that guy who was up and coming to really establish some of the signature characteristics of his style. You know, be it from the energy crackles to the looks on characters' faces to those dynamic poses of the way he would pose, especially teams, because that's what George is so well known for. Yeah. And this is the time, too, you have to remember that most of these guys were still working Marvel style, meaning that they weren't getting full scripts. You know, they would talk to the writer and they would get short plots or summaries or, you know, work it out on the phone. And then the penciler would sit down and draw it. So really, they were the ones at first who were adding in those facial expressions and coming up with a lot of the story in their head that the writers would then go back and add the dialogue to after the fact. So much cool stuff. All right. So these issues written by Jim Shooter, art by George Perez, inks by Pablo Marcos, and then colors were uh, a mix from issue to issue. It's Roger Sliffer. Don Warfield. I think Shooter actually colors uh, 161. Yeah. So there's a bunch of that. But if you are reading this on Unlimited or in one of our more modern collections, the coloring has been, you know, retouched up and like we've cleaned up a lot. Uh, yep. Big shout outs again to the team who's working uh, under uh, Jeff Youngquist and Jen Grunwald and all of them. They do amazing work. Like these issues look so stellar. 
with the, you know, sort of the reconstruction that they've done. Without a doubt. So Avengers number 160. And again, the thing that strikes me right off the bat is how detailed George gets with the art. Like so much. And, you know, starting right with the cover, you know, the, the detail is there. It pulls you in. It's one of those classic Marvel covers with word balloons that leave you. You can't help but not want to turn the page and see what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, you've got uh, Grim Reaper, which I want to get into his costume in a little bit. It was yeah. so cool. But that, yeah, that cover is fantastic. But then what's so funny about this is is you, you turn the cover and you go to the first page. And it really like breaks one of the cardinal rules of storytelling. Every character is featured from behind. <laughs> you don't know who any of the characters are. It really is the last page of the previous issue moved to the first page of this issue. Yeah. And uh, I just love that. And then, but, you know, the way that they add in the Grim Reaper's sickle here and just the slight recap box that Shooter writes in really makes it work, you know? Yeah. And I I love seeing the Stanley presents at the top. Like, those, for me, are so were so important because, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. You know, you pick up a book here and there randomly. I wouldn't be able to follow... Especially as I got older, comics got more expensive and we were still putting these in. I learned so much about characters right off the bat from those boxes. I ended up with one of my best friends when I was a kid. We ended up writing our own characters and our own Stanley Presents boxes. I wish I still had those. I know. You don't have mine. No, yeah, I wish. (laughs) So the thing about George here, which I wanted to talk about, is at this point, he'd already done more than 10 issues of Avengers on and off for a few years. At the same time, he's doing Fantastic Four, Inhumans, Logan's Run. He's like everywhere at Marvel, but he's so rock solid as a storyteller already. Can you guess how old he was at this time? I would want to say late 20s? 22. Come on. He's 22 years old, maybe 23. I'm not sure when he was actually drawing these and, you know, over the span of three yeah. and three months and change, but he's 22 or 23. Wow. Blew my mind when I figured that out this morning. I was like, how is that possible? Prodigy. He is complete at this point. And Mm -hmm. he only gets better. But like, if this was his apex, he would still be one of the greatest artists. And this was just the start. It's mind-boggling. So this first issue pits the Grim Reaper against the whole team. Mm -hmm. And it is wonderfully ridiculous because he's all like twisted up about his brother's death and then his brother returning to life. He's like, I got the black talent to do some voodoo to bring you back to life. I don't know what's going on. Everything is so ridiculous. And then you're back, but I have to prove you're back and it's you and your body, not in that other body. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then he gets all twisted up because vision is there and vision's got wonder man's, you know, brainwaves and there's so much drama. It's delicious. I love to say that this is the, this is the arc of angst and self doubt. Yep. Every character is scowling or yelling <laughs> or angry, and then later in the arc, they're all like doubting themselves when they finally get into that climactic battle. Like, what are we doing? Why should we be here? What 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 is my purpose in life? <laughs> I mean, the poor beast. At one point, you know, like I don't know how long he's been on the team at this point, but like he's like ah, he's trying to be all bouncy and happy, mm-hmm. and then people are like, dude, stop it. Yep. Everything's terrible. And he's like, I'm sorry. But the thing is now, if you read Beast in X-Men over the last 20, 30 years, he's been that kind of like serious, morose kind of guiding light of the X-Men. And here he was, the bouncing blue beast as he was known. Oh, my stars and garters. And you could see the personality here, which is so different from the character that he eventually became. The world beat him down. That's terrible. (laughs) Poor guy. But the Grim Reaper comes in. And it's just like, it's so silly. And I love it. He makes a mock trial. Yeah. He like knocks out the entire Avengers. Then they wake up, like instead of killing them, which he could have done, yeah. 
he makes them go on trial and Black Panther is his like is the other lawyer question mark. It's so good. And all of a sudden they're all in gauntlets yep. that, you know, will will painfully, you know, inflict them because of their genetics. <laughs> but where did he get them? Who made them? <laughs> no. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It's great. So yeah, Grim Reaper. Fantastic costume. Yep. There's a, a flashback in this issue showing his old costume. It was like weird colors and stuff like that. But this one is like the purple cape with the black with the the skull and bones. Perfect. Yeah. It's really good. And just the the sickle and the powers that it has. Mm -hmm. It's a multi-purpose weapon. It's it's a Swiss Army knife on his arm. (laughs) It really is. (laughs) But I also always wonder, too, in this design, like when you look at it, was there some influence from Galactus? Because Galactus is such a cool design. It's only people because the helmet has kind of those like the the similar, uh, you know, like – I want to say, you know, horns, boomerang type horns or whatever on top. So it's like the Kirby influences carries through even here. Yeah. Well, I mean, you look at all of the detail that George does, but you can very clearly see the Kirby in his work so much, whether it's the circuitry, like every time he draws backgrounds, there's like Kirby designs in the background or the Kirby crackle that exists across all his pages. Or even this panel I'm pointing to right here where you've got. It's uh, the second page of issue 160. Yeah, it's Beast and Wonder Man. And that impact, that the way he's moving, it looks like something Kirby would draw of, like a character getting thrown off. Yep. But yeah, you know, th- there's a flashback to his costume, but then you're going through and it's just, this is where it's always great. They retell the origins. And this is part of the thing that we were just talking about. You know, yeah. we didn't have recap pages. They couldn't go online and Google where the characters came from. So in order to still keep each comic new reader friendly, which Stan and all the writers kept, editors kept in mind at that mm. point, they went through and they introduced a couple pages of flashbacks where they retold sometimes the story, but also the actual origins of the characters. And it eats up a lot of real estate. It does eat up <laughs> a really, lot of real estate. It really yeah. does. I was looking at the last page specifically of this first issue. And what we were just talking about with the backgrounds, it's wild how much work is put into just like this right here. Yeah. The background circuitry behind Vision, so finely detailed or, or like, you know. The, yeah, the, the cross hatching in panel four on the last page. Yeah. My goodness. It's incredible. It reminds me of something Joe Casada was talking about at the editorial retreat about for artists to keep in mind what you put in every panel. You can make things dynamic every single panel, even if it's people talking, and there's ways to do it. Going back to the Kirby of it all, and you look at how an artist like George probably kept that in mind yep. to keep these stories so, like, they vibrate off the page. Yep. It's really and cool. the other thing I like about this page, it's another classic thing that ha- was happening in Marvel Comics at this time. If the issue did not end on a cliffhanger, right, which a lot of times it did because you wanted to keep the readers coming back, wait those 30 days, and we're going to get them, it ended on some kind of kind of ominous words or some kind of caption that would keep you equally as interested. And in this one, next, beware the Ant-Man. Mm. Those simple four words. Wait a second. Why do we have to beware of the Ant-Man? But wasn't he Yellow Jacket in the previous issue or even earlier in this issue? And why is the Ant-Man back? And why do we have to fear the Ant-Man? It's like, oh, now I really want to read what's going to happen Heck again. Yeah. You know? yeah, that's really smart. Really, really good stuff. And one of the things, I know when we picked these, you know, we picked them on the decade and the strength of the art and how much we like the stories, our memories of the stories. But as I was reading through these, the interesting thing is in all three of these issues, there are things happening here that are going to directly relate to the Marvel Universe later this summer, which is completely unexpected and it's a wonderful coincidence. Yeah, that's a little tease. Uh, CB was telling me about this stuff off mic. It's really cool. I love how this all comes together. 
All right, so Avengers 161, really 161 and 162 were the main reason I looked at this three-issue connection specifically because it's the Bride of Ultron two-parter. Ultron coming back, he is basically lonely and he wants to find a mate. Mm-hmm. And he, the only way he understands how is to basically replicate the way he was created and make a metal woman. Yep. It's really sad and tragic at this, you know, like, he's a terrible villain. Like, I mean, he's a great villain, but he's like such an awful being, murderous, depraved, cruel, calculating. But he just was like, well, I just, I don't want to be alone. Yeah. Exactly. You feel for them. Even the robots in the Marvel Universe have heart. That's right. That's right. Um, One of the things I always like about looking back on issues like this, and Tom Brevoort could actually probably answer this a little bit more, but the way the comics were made and sold today in them are different. Like now you have to have the cover done three and four months in advance to be able to solicit to retailers to get it on comic book shelves. And back here they were selling to newsstands, so nobody knew what the cover was going to be like. So often the covers were done after the issue was fully penciled. Wow. And sometimes when I go back and I look at issues here, I try to guess like, all right, was the issue penciled first or was the cover penciled first? And that's where it came from. And in this case, I think I clearly can identify that it was the cover that came last because there's a scene literally right out of the comic reversed on the page on the cover with, you know, Ant-Man kind of jumping up and attacking Cap and Black Panther. So I was like, in this case, I think I could pretty much say that the cover came second. Ah, look at that. I love that. I I actually didn't realize that. I learn things all the time with you, CB. So it opens with Hank Pym back as Ant-Man, which, as you were talking about, might be like confusing and you're mystery and you're like, what's going on? And he's plotting against the Avengers, which is really interesting because... His mind is all twisted up. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he's been like that. We learn throughout the the course of the story because of Ultron, because of Ultron's meddling. But then you look at this as being really kind of key for Hank Pym and his character over the years. You know, he's he's not a well man. And this is basically harming someone who's already needing help. He's, you know, like his mental problems. You get a little bit of them, and we see them more and more as you go along. And then we, you know, we get that glimpse into the mental illness, the bipolar disorder that would affect him over the years. And we're even seeing that now with Nadia uh, Van Dyne in Unstoppable Wasp. Yeah, that's another thing I was going to bring up. Exactly. You're seeing reflections of what's going on in these issues directly relating to current continuity in what they're doing in Unstoppable Wasp, which is fantastic. And back then, you know, this is in the 70s, there wasn't really an open discussion about mental disorder and, you know, it was almost kept quiet. But now, given where we are and, you know, comics reflecting the real world, people talk openly about that stuff, which is why Nadia is opening up about not just her problems, but some of the things that she knew that her father, who she never really knew went through as well. Yeah. Um, but this issue has got two neat battles here, Ant-Man versus the Avengers and Ultron versus the Avengers. Yep. One big thing I don't love about these issues is the doting, oh, darlingness of the women. You know, Scarlet Witch with Vision, Janet with Hank. Yep. It feels so much that they're they're there because of the men instead of the fact that Janet, cre- uh, you know, helped create the Avengers. She's been an Avengers leader. Scarlet Witch is one of the most powerful characters on the team. There's not enough agency 
to them at this point. Yeah, and at this point, they really let themselves be f- defined by their male counterparts, lovers, husbands, whatever they were, which was a tenant of the time. But you look at how much things have changed now yes. and how powerful these women have become, not just on the teams and with their powers, but as leading female voices and heroes in the Marvel Universe. It's just that leap is, is so wonderful to see. Yeah. I will say, to counter my own point, Wanda does get a really awesome moment against Ultron in this issue. The whole team is down, and she's like, you forgot about me. I'm the most dangerous one. And then Captain America's like, I got it from here. I was like, Cap, sit down. Let her take care of this, you dumb butt. I got so angry at him. I was like, I know you're from the 40s, but she can take this. She's yep. got it. But we also, yeah, we get Wonder Man's new costume. And it's somehow more ridiculous. And it, it, it's like, it's like, oh, but our fashion expert, Jan Van Dyne, is not available. So, you know, here's your new costume. And then later you see Janet designed a new costume for herself. That wasn't the most flattering uh, what was going fashion on? choice either. I was looking at that. And it's got the, the, uh, the legs the cutouts, on, have yeah. like the holes in it, which made me think, oh, is that where uh, Kate Bishop got the inspiration for the holes in her costume, ah, which don't do anything? No. I love it. But it was just a sign of the times. You know, either Shooter <laughs> or George spent a little too much time at the disco. So that's what they liked. They oh, were you young. Know what? Yeah. You know what? Yeah. They might have been having a good time. And speaking of fashion, there's those cutaways yes. to Hawkeye and uh, Two-Gun Kid yes. in, in, in wherever they are at the, at the, the Dude Ranch. Cheerios Dude Ranch. Cheerios Dude Ranch. Amazing. And then there's this random scene about halter tops. Yeah. <laughs> Two-gun kid's like, he like does a double take like, whoa, modern ladies. Yep. It's it's ridiculous. But this These scenes, I know they eventually led to something later in the, in the run, but they just seem so random in here. And there's one where Two-gun kid is reading a Two-gun kid comic, and he's like, man, that Kirby could really draw. And I was like, yes, he could. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. We're putting a little nod in here. That was one of my favorite moments. And then he shoots the phone because he's like, I don't know what this thing is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Thor goes, bah! And he hangs up <laughs> on the other end. <laughs> I love this little vacation thing. And having not read this run a ton, I'm glad it does pay off. Because to yeah. me, I was just like, oh, are we just seeing why Hawkeye's not there? And there's even a moment where Wonder Man's like, we really got to call this Hawkeye guy. What is he going to do? And Thor's like, hey, you save the world a, a few times and, and we'll talk. Yeah. I like that. Like, Thor's got his boys back. Yep, totally. That made me happy. So I, I want to get into the last part, the 162, because we open after the – oh, well, actually, the last page of this is, again, that, like, amazing cliffhanger yep. moment that you're talking about, the big, like, final moment that is, like, I have to read what comes next. And you got – Poor Jarvis coming in like with his groceries, like, oh, hello, everyone, I'm back. And then they're all dead. Yep, there's some black panels here. And he's like, who turned out the lights? Tony Stark said, always leave the lights on. <laughs> Rich guys wasting their electricity. <laughs> yeah. uh, so we see this devastation at the end of this issue. And then you go to the next issue, and we're told that four Avengers are dead. And they're wheeling them into ambulances, yep. which is, I've read this and I was like, wait. What's going on? Mm-hmm. And Thor shows up. Uh, Ultron uses his encephalo beam. I didn't know what that was. I had to look up encephalo. It just means of the brain. Yeah. So he's just got a brain beam. Yeah, but it's, it's a great name. And it, it's a great name. And it kind of also plays with a lot of the stuff that Stan used to, to do when he was naming stuff. He would just go to the dictionary or go to the thesaurus and look up a term that was similar to lead people on. that had this long, complicated kind of medical word to it or scientific terminology yeah. and use it. And yeah. he, you just took it for granted. I, that, mm-hmm. That's a thing that I always appreciated about reading comics when I was younger. 
I read so many words, especially X-Men, you know, Claremont oh, yeah. and then like a lot of other writers, they were very verbose, but they would use language that maybe you don't always use when you're speaking, mm. but it was really helpful in, in thinking about words and language for myself as a kid. And, you know, some of that was really done intentionally because I was uh, speaking with John Byrne recently and I mentioned to him how I learned a lot of words would pick up the dictionary while reading a lot of his and Chris's comics over the, like you just mentioned. And he said, no, they did that specifically because John remembered learning so much, uh, doing the same thing, reading old comics when he was growing up and that he would get out the dictionary and that's how he became an, a voracious reader and really started to wonder about language and vocabulary and etymology and things like that. So he did that purposely when they were writing comics with Chris and then he, when he was writing and drawing on his own. That makes me so happy. This issue, the Encephalobeam takes out Captain America, Beast, Scarlet Witch, and Vision. So they are out of the issue after the first page. They're, they're like being wheeled into ambulances. Mount Sinai ambulances, no less. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah it's really dire. <laughs> Thor comes in because we need a heavy hitter. Vision is gone. Wanda's gone. So they need someone to really like take over and help out. Iron um, Man is recharging. Yeah. He's like, I'm so tired. I need my batteries. Yeah. And there's a thing here that's really never explained. Mm. It's that uh, at the end of the last issue, some reason Ultron has a prison in his finger that he sucks <laughs> Ant-Man into. Yeah. And then the next issue, Ant-Man's just chilling out, normal size, hanging out, no mention of the prison or where he went. Just, nope. okay. Yeah. That didn't work. Move on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got to keep it going. Keep yeah. it going. They mm-hmm. only got two issues to tell the story. Yeah. And, you know, we open up and like real creepy because they're the, like the weird relationships that go on because he does call Hank father. Yeah. And then... Jan is kind of mother. And it's like, yeah, yeah. Black Panther puts that together a little bit later, too. He's like, yeah. mm, this is a little creepy. A little creepy. But then, again, the focus not being particularly the women in the scene or, you know, Ultron and Hank Pym up there on the left, but the amazing Kirby design of the lab again, which is really the focus of so much of that last page, the panel on that page. Yeah. That's oh, gorgeous stuff. So the plan is to make Ultron's mate. Janet, and then this robot body, the robot body, we will later learn, not even in this issue, later learn that that is Jocasta. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he's trying to transfer Janet's essence into Jocasta's body throughout this issue. There's a lovely page. Yeah, this one here where uh, he frames the like the bottom two thirds of the page left and right panels with one half Jan's face, one half Jocasta's face. Yeah, the, the symmetry of that page is beautiful, and it just speaks to the brilliance of Perez as a as a young penciler, younger than I even knew. You're supposed to tell a story. That's what writers and artists are. They're storytellers. But each page is almost supposed to be a piece of art that you could hang on your wall in and of itself. And this is one where it's absolutely gorgeous. If you put that up on the wall, comic fan or not, that's something that's going to grab your eye, just given the beautiful layout. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was looking at a lot of these pages. This is a nine-panel page right or three one two three four five six seven eight nine ten so this is a ten panel page this is a ten panel page there's also a lot of nine panel pages but none of them are the same layout and that's a really interesting thing you could do an easy nine panel grid page boom 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 but he changes up every single page so your eye is darting around you're still following the story perfectly but you're getting a different look across each page and is 
so masterful. Yeah. And speaking of masterful, the other thing you notice as you go through these three issues, especially this issue in particular, is the range of emotions that the characters go through and the way you can feel it on their faces. Yeah. And not just Thor and Wonder Man and, you know, the characters who you can see their kind of eyes or their mouth under the mask, but what Iron Man and Ant-Man and even Ultron, you know, the way he gives him expressive emotion in the kind of metallic form that he's in is just amazing. Yeah. There's no one who draws Ultron better than Perez. No. I mean, you know, looking at this and you think about the um, the Ultron story with Perez and Kurt Busiek, Busiek yeah. um, from, you know, the, the early 2000s, just he looks so scary. But then at the, there are those times, like you're saying, where you're like you see the anguish yeah. and you, you almost feel for him. But he's such a scumbag. And it, it's one of the biggest pieces of advice is that myself or Ricky Purden or any of the editors give young artists at you know portfolio reviews is that facial expression and body language are just as important as layouts or as the way that you're setting up the, the characters or positioning the characters in the pages. You know? So it's, it, you can tell a story just with hand motions and facial expressions on their own. Yeah. There's a, a couple pages from where you're looking right now. There's this uh, incredibly dramatic page where like the energy is being pulled from Jan's body to uh, Joe Costa. And it is, yeah, this page here. The sweat, the anguish, like the close-ups, the little things that George does, so engaging and emotional, the framing of it all, the Kirby crackle here. You know, you're just like pulled into all of this so eloquently even while there's so much text on that page. Yeah, but the thing is that Shooter did a really good job in this scene too, balancing Wasp's dialogue and Jocasta's dialogue, which is the same voice coming from two different people, saying the same thing in two different ways, but still confusing Ant-Man enough for him to continue as part of Ultron's minion, thinking he can make this happen for the right reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, at Ultron the whole time, he's just, like, thinking, I got him, I got him. Ooh, this yeah. is happening. I'm so excited. He's going to, like, do a little dance. That's great. Big battle. It's the end of the story. I'm glad we read this. This was this was a really fun trio of issues. No, and, and again, you know, tying back to things that are going on in the current Marvel Universe, Joe Costa plays a big part in Dan Slott's Tony Stark Iron Man currently. That storyline over the next couple months is going to be developing. And, you know, she has come so far in her run. Talk about, you know, the empowerment of the female characters in the Marvel Universe that she went from an emotionless robot who was, you know, built to be the bride of Ultron to being this character who is out there as one of the most powerful female characters in that book, but fighting for AI rights, not just rights, you know, uh, of other female heroes. Yeah, it's so cool. Anything else you want to touch on before we uh, we get close to wrapping? No, I wish we could go on and continue because some <laughs> of the rest of these stories were just so much fun. And then again, leave it on that mystery. Who sent the ants to st- with the message to save this? It wasn't Hank Pym, was it Wasp? No, it was neither of them. Could it have been this mindless robot who, you know, seeks a soul of her own in yeah. the future? Possibly, you know. So, it's cool stuff. So as we've done with these, uh, with the other Twim URCs, I like to take a look at what came at the beginning of the month, uh, the beginning of the decade, and at the end of the decade, uh, and see what you think about all this. So January 1970, we have issues of Amazing Spider-Man, Avengers, Captain Savage, Captain America, Chamber of Darkness, Chili, Daredevil, Fantastic Four, Incredible Hulk, Iron Man, Kid Colt Outlaw, Mad About Millie, Marvel's Greatest Comics, Millie the Model, Our Love Story. Rawhide Kid, Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos, Silver Surfer, Submariner, Thor, X-Men, plus 
Homer the Happy Ghost, Marvel Tales, PD, Ringo Kid, Tower of Shadows, and Where Monsters Dwell. That is a very diverse line. And again, the name that keeps popping up to me that I just remember the most is sticking in my head is Millie. Yeah. She pops up in almost every decade that we've done so far. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we need to get more Millie. Yeah. I love Millie. Uh, all right, so let's fast forward to the end of the decade, December 1979. So we have Amazing Adventures, Amazing Spider-Man, Avengers, Battlestar Galactica, Captain America, Conan the Barbarian, already issue 108. Wow. Crazy Magazine, I think there was like issue 58 of that. Daredevil, Defenders, Fantastic Four, Ghost Rider, the Howard the Duck Magazine. Mm -hmm. We've already gone through the Howard the Duck comic, now into the Howard the Duck Magazine. The Hulk Magazine, as well as Incredible Hulk. Iron Man, King Conan, it's the first issue of King Conan. Man-Thing, Marvel Preview, Marvel Spotlight, Marvel Super Special, which I think every issue is an adaptation of a movie. Mm -hmm. uh, so this one was the Star Trek movie adaptation. Oh. Yeah. Uh, there was one that was Xanadu, which I'm pretty sure either Nick Lowe or Steve Wacker has. Steve Wacker. Wacker. Steve Wacker, if you're listening. We, ne we never forget here. Never <laughs> forget. There's Marvel Team-Up, Marvel Treasury Edition, which has... Spider-Man and Hulk at the Winter Olympics, Ooh. the Marvel 2-in-1, Master of Kung Fu, Micronauts and Rom. Yes. Finally uh, remember those. Yep. Savage She-Hulk, Savage Sword of Conan, Shogun Warrior, Spectacular Spider-Man, Spider-Woman, Spidey Super Stories, which was the Electric Company connected book, which is very fondly remembered by many people. Star Wars, issue 33 of that. Star Wars Annual came out. Tales to Astonish, Thor, Tomb of Dracula was, you know, rolling yep. along. Still big in the horror in the 70s. What If, and X-Men issue 131 with that gorgeous White Queen cover. So cool. And we also, at that point, were reprinting a bunch. That month, we had Amazing Adventures, Fantasy Masterpieces, Marvel Super Action, Marvel Superheroes, Marvel Tales, Marvel's Greatest Comics. All those were just reprints. Wow. And, like, I almost slightly less diverse you know, then at the beginning of the decade, that's, but more books. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It sounds like the books you just listed in the end is more like the mo modern Marvel universe you see today. We were kind of still phasing out of a lot of those genre yeah. books or different books from the, the, the 60s and the, the early 70s. Yeah. So it was superheroes were this was this was the era they were taken off. So. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't think there was a Western book. It's rare. We hadn't. We've had Western books the entire time. Except Two-Gun Kid visiting here in yes. Avengers. Yes, we get them in there. Pretty cool. Yeah, that and you know, one of the things I did want to mention, it was a, a big shout-out at this point to uh, editor Archie Goodwin. It's someone who, again, was such a driving force to, as a right-hand man to stand, really helping drive the superhero genre along, really responsible for injecting not just a lot of the fun into the Marvel Universe, but keeping track of the continuity and making sure that all the stories fit together and really making the, the Marvel Universe what it is today. And he eventually went on to, again, become another one of those legends in comics that left such an indelible mark on what we do today. Well said, CB. Our next Twim URC is going to be about the 80s. That one's got to be X-Men. We got to do X-Men. Okay. I feel like- X-Men, done. You know, we, now we just have to pick the X-Men we want to do. Yep. Is it like Days of Future Past? We, all right. We'll, we'll figure that out mm -hmm. afterwards. Uh, but it's going to be X-Men for the 80s. Yeah. If you have any specific suggestions or requests, tweet to at Agent M or at CB Sobolski. Use hashtag Twim URC. CB, have fun in your travels. Thanks. And good luck here and have fun uh, holding down the floor while I'm gone. All right, big thanks again to CB. He is off, literally like globe trotting. I think he was saying he's doing seven flights in five days, and then it's all work. He's a trooper. Uh, we'll have him back on next month for our 80s episode, but we have uh, one 
comment in here on the Twitter. This one is from Brian Bell, who says, by the way, I thought the story in Avengers 160 through 162 was a little weak. We'd read it before, but the George Perez art is glorious. Well, I got to say, I disagree with you about the story. It's, it is, take it of the time. Think of 1977. Yeah, the Avengers have been around for, you know, a while, but Ultron coming in and his twisted sense and all the stuff that's going on with Hank at that point, maybe we've seen it really like a lot of those things now and again in 2019, but it feels like in 77, that would have been super fresh, super interesting. But yes, there is no denying George Perez is one of the greatest artists of all time and at 22 or 23 years old should not have been feasible to put that book together. So cool. And uh, for the 80s, get ready for some X-Men. Twim URC is going to hit the mutants hard. Is that, is that the saying? Sure. Triple P's giving me the thumbs up. That also means let's go home. I'm Ryan, and this is Marvel, your universe.